You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley, one of the pastors here. We have a little tight stage set up today, but thankfully no one's fallen off, so that's a win so far. Um, Today's going to be a little unique. Uh, We like to to preach through books of the Bible here at King's Church, uh, and that typically means that we take a passage of Scripture, sometimes relatively lengthy, just like the one we have today, and we spend about 30 minutes uh, speaking on that particular text. Now, today I'm not going to do that because right after this, uh, we have baptisms and and people sharing their testimonies. And yes, it's worth celebrating uh, what the Lord has done in redeeming people. So I'm going to try to give what's called a sermonette, which is a brief sermon of a passage which no pastor has ever actually successfully done before. So we're going to see if I can accomplish that today. So let's hold on tight. Uh, Before we get there, uh, I'm going to have uh, an image on the screen here. And perhaps you've seen this uh, sometime over the last few years. It's a simple phrase that says, keep calm and carry on. Now, this phrase uh, has become quite a a meme that has morphed into different things, some more humorous, like the ones on the next page here, like keep calm and call your mom, which is actually a really good thing to do, guys, Uh, or keep calm and grow a mustache, which some of you have taken to heart way too seriously here at King's Church, Uh, or the other one is keep calm and eat bacon, which uh, several of you guys ate way too much bacon this weekend on the men's retreat as well. You should probably go check out uh, a doctor later, Uh, but but we've we've morphed this, this phrase into kind of humorous memes. Now, I don't think the original intent of this was for that, because if you don't know the backstory of this, the phrase keep calm and carry on actually originated in 1939. It was a poster from the British government, uh, a motivational poster that was uh, displayed in, in, uh, excuse me, in anticipation of World War II. As the Brits were realizing the threat of massive air raids, as they were realizing the potential threat even of a German invasion, they printed these. Now, they actually never went out uh, into uh, mass production, but they printed these posters as a way to help people cope with the crisis they were about to face. Now, we all still like this meme today, and we still use it in variations because it touches a human, uh, a global human need. And that is, what do we do in moments of crisis? What do we do in moments that stress us out when the circumstances seem too large for us? We're going to find in Acts 23 and 24 that Paul finds himself in a very stressful, tense situation. It's like Paul's living a suspenseful movie here in Acts 23 and 24. And we like to watch thrillers, but we don't like to encounter them in our own lives, do we? Right? Paul's going to encounter that here. We're first going to see that he's an object of of literally a terrorist attack by these Jews. Uh, And then after that, we're going to see that he's in prison and then put on an unfair trial that seems unwinnable. And yet the Apostle Paul remains calm. He remains courageous. How? Because Paul had a trust in the sovereignty and power of God. Paul had an unwavering trust in the sovereignty and power of God. You see, what happens when times of crisis or circumstances come upon us? How do we react? Do we stress out about those things? Do we feel like those circumstances are too great for God to overcome? Do we feel like he's distant from our problems and our times of greatest need? You see, I find in my own life, it's easier to affirm the sovereignty of God theoretically than it is to actually experience it, especially in moments of crisis. But God's not distant. He's not distant from our moments. And this passage is going to remind us that we can rest the whole weight of our concerns on God the Father because he has the whole world in his hands. 
He's not independent of our circumstances. Our circumstances in life do not limit God. He is Lord over them. And just like Paul here, he wants to use us in even in moments of crisis to work through us for his glory. And so really the main idea today, and the one thing that we're just going to talk about uh, this morning is this, that we can keep calm because God is in control. We can keep calm just like Paul because God is at work. Notice in the text today that in this narrative, we don't see God speaking. We don't even see Jesus or the Holy Spirit mentioned. It's almost as if he's absent from the narrative. And it's a great reminder for us this morning, because sometimes I think we, we can think that God isn't working in our lives if we don't see the visible signs of his power. But this text reminds us that we should never mistake the absence of the miraculous for the inactivity of God. You see, God's hand is quietly at work in this story, and God's hand is always quietly at work in ours. And so as we dive into the text, we're first going to look at a recap of where we are in the book of Acts, and then we'll dive into our one main point this morning. And so if you've been tracking with us, we've been going through the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is really just teaching us the, the, the history of the church, the earliest Christianity. It begins in Jerusalem, where Jesus tells his disciples that you're going to be my witnesses here first in Jerusalem, then you go out to the neighboring regions, and then eventually to the ends of the earth. And as they're in Jerusalem, many believe in the message of Jesus, but many oppose it as well. And one of those who strongly opposed this message was none other than Saul of Tarsus. Saul made it his aim to crush this movement of Jesus. That was until he himself encountered the risen Jesus. And when Paul encountered Christ, everything changed. It transformed his life to the point where he was no longer an enemy of Jesus, but he was a herald of his kingdom. And, and Saul, now Paul, is going throughout the Roman Empire, and he's starting these new churches. And we find at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is now journeying uh, to Rome, but by Rome, way back to Jerusalem. And we learned a few weeks ago that all of his friends were telling him, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to find affliction, you're going to find suffering in that place. And Paul goes anyways because he's compelled by the Spirit to go. And as he goes, he's arrested, an angry mob tries to attack him, uh, the, the Romans protect him actually, and he finds himself in prison. And here we pick up in verse 12. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. I've never seen someone fast for murder before, right? I mean, this is pretty incredible, right? They say there are more than 40 of us who made this conspiracy. So you have these guys, they're making this attack, and then they unfold their plan in verse 15. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we were ready to kill him before he comes near. And so they're going to ambush Paul. They're going to assassinate Paul here. But something happens. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. And so he tells them the story of what he's heard. And then verse 22, we pick up, it says, So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called 200 centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Now this is an entourage, right? Uh, this is protection at its greatest for Paul. You see, the day after Jesus reassured Paul in the barracks, uh, as we looked last week, to take courage, there's now these 40 men who are angry. They hatch a plan to kill him. This is a hit job on Paul, but God thwarts their scheme. And it reminds us of this simple truth, that God often uses small things to accomplish his, his great purpose. 
He often uses the smallest of details to accomplish his great purpose. We don't know how old Paul's nephew is here. We don't even know how close he is to Paul. And we don't even know how he heard the plan. Perhaps because they saw him as insignificant, they just openly talked about their plan, underestimating that he would be even listening. And yet Paul uses, or excuse me, God uses Paul's nephew here to thwart this assassination plan. And it's a reminder that the Lord often uses the little things, the things that we would consider insignificant to accomplish his great purposes. There's no burning bush involved here for Paul. There's no angel sweeping in and bursting into the prison for Paul to rescue him. Paul's life is spared because the result of people doing what's right in front of them. God is using the ordinary actions to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. And this should be an encouragement for all of us today, because if God delights in using the little things just like this nephew, then God can use us. However small or apparently insignificant we might think we are, we're not to the story of God. We're not to the way in which he is redeeming this world. And God uses Paul's nephew to save him, and he uses this, this other guy, Lysias, who, who we read about in the text, to protect Paul, to get these Roman centurions to come around Paul and protect him, to get him to where his next destination would be. And that's where we pick up in chapter 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. Now, Tertullus would be great in D.C., as we'll see in just a moment. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, which is totally false, by the way. Um, he says, Since you, Felix, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. This guy's buttering him up big time, right? Verse 5. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything in which we accuse him. And so they hire this guy, Tertullus, to come. And he kind of reminds me of one of those like, sleazy like, mob boss lawyers in like, Law and Order SVU. Like, he's just slick, and he comes in with all this flattery just dripping from his lips, like totally lying and deceiving to try to get Felix on his side. And then he just states his case plainly. He says, this man Paul is a plague. This man Paul starts riots. This man, Paul, is the gangster leader of this sect called the Nazarenes, which is like a derogatory term for Christians. And then finally, he says, this man, Paul, has done something so heinous, he has defiled the temple. And upon examination, you will find that this man should be accused of these things. And so what does Paul do? After these false attacks on Paul, we pick up in verse 10, 10 and he says this, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul stands in the midst of a crisis moment, in the midst of suspense, when false accusations are coming against him, and he cheerfully makes his defense. With joy, with calmness, with courage, he speaks what the truth is. And right after this, he begins to break down these false charges. But then he does confess the truth in verse 14. He says this, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, 
that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. You see, the truth of the matter, why Paul was on trial here, was not because he did any of the things that Tertullus accused him of doing. The truth of the matter was Paul was on trial because of the resurrection, because he believed in the resurrection. And so what does Felix do? Well, verse 24, after some days after this speech, Felix came with his wife, Drusilia, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. How amazing is this? That God used all those small, insignificant details to get Paul to a place where he can openly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to this man. And then verse 25, And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now we can read the rest of the story and know that Felix never takes hold of that opportunity. He has an opportunity here to hear the gospel and to receive it, but he doesn't. And in fact, to kind of save his own image, he keeps Paul in prison until he's no longer governor. Now, as we come to a a conclusion of this story today, we get ready to celebrate baptism. I think Paul really gets to the heart here in his defense speech of why he has this unwavering, strong confidence in the sovereignty of God. The kind of unwavering confidence that despite him being in prison, despite receiving death threats, despite being on an unfair trial, he has this unwavering confidence in God's plan to work through him. And how does he have this? He has it because of hope. Notice what he confesses. He confesses that he believes in Jesus. He confesses that he has hope in God. Now, hope is something that we all want in life. But sometimes when we think of hope, we think of it in, term, in relative terms. In the sense of if we hope in other things of this world or other human beings, we're hoping in a relative sense. In other words, if, if I lend something to someone, I hope that they return it. If I work hard, I hope that I'll get that promotion. But it's not certain. It's not guaranteed. And sometimes we can think that we have control of our lives when the reality is we don't. And if we put our hope in ourselves or in others, that hope will always be relative. It will always be uncertain. It will never have the confidence and the assurance that hope should bring into one's life. But Paul says we don't put our hope in a human being. We put our hope in God. And when our hope is in God, then we can affirm that he has a plan, that he is trustworthy, that it is certain. And all that is because of the resurrection. You see, if we believe in the resurrection of Jesus today, then we can confirm that there's a God who is both good and powerful, who brings light from darkness, and who is patiently working in all of our stories for his glory, for our good, and for the good of this world. And it's the resurrection that meets all of our universal desires and needs today. You see, the reason why we want hope in this life is because we know that none of us want to endure the trials of this world. None of us want to face the evil of this world. All of us, if we really look down in our hearts, we want to escape death. We want to escape the troubles of this world. We want a love that never ends. And in Christ, all those things are promised to us. But not only they promised to us, they are demonstrated and confirmed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because in the resurrection, we don't just get a good life. In the resurrection of Jesus, 
we have a hope that is eternal. We have the eternal love of God. We have forgiveness of our sins. We have triumph over death and evil. We have the hope that all things will be made right one day. Why would we not want this hope? And Paul stands and he gives his defense. And the reason he can stay calm, the reason he can have courage in a moment of crisis is because he knows that God is at work. He can keep calm because he knows that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if he is raised from the dead today, then we can trust and we can rest in his sovereignty. We can know that he is working for our good and through us to accomplish his great purposes. And there's no better way to represent that today than through baptism, than to see what Christ has done in our life and to know that we have a hope that is unwavering, a confidence in our God that no matter what circumstances you're going through today, he is in control. He is for you. He is with you. And just like Paul, you can trust him. You can put your hope in him today. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.